We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. For boosted parlays to live in-game offs on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit winbet.com. That's W-H-N-N-Bet.com to start winning. Blue Liar. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. Joined as always my co-host, Nick Pilato. Today is the day where we start our series, the Draft Profile Series. For those of you who are new to the podcast and joined us either this year, recently, or this past offseason after the draft, after the 2021 draft, what we like to do in the pre-draft process, and that's now until late April when this draft goes off, is take a player, break down his strengths and weaknesses, break down how he potentially fits on the Giants, Talk about some of the stats, talk about some of the length, talk about some of the advanced analytics, and also talk a little bit about if we kind of agree or disagree with the pros and cons that have been kind of put out there about these players. There's a lot of talk about a lot of prospects, some which we'll agree with, some which we'll disagree with, and we'll get to that on each show. But also talk about where they might fit within the Giants draft landscape. Like, are they a player that is in range for the Giants? Some of these players are going to be like, Zay, I remember Zayvon Collins last year. We just felt like Zayvon Collins was never going to be in the range where the Giants were going to have a chance to draft him or should like be interested in drafting him. And so we'll get to some of those players, but some of those players are good to still talk about for a variety of reasons, especially because the Giants might trade. And if they trade, that resets their draft position and kind of changes where they might want to take a prospect. They might not want to take a prospect. We're going to start the draft series today with Charles Cross, the offensive tackle out of Mississippi State. Before we dive into that, though, Nick, it's been a little while. Obviously, we did one last week on Joe Shane and Brian DeBull at DeBull, I should say, at the Combine. Dable, that's how it is. Dable. All right, I'm going to get that down eventually. But anything you wanted to talk about life-wise or Giants-wise before we dive into Charles Cross as a prospect? Likewise, I went to an Italian festival here in Arizona. It was good to be around a bunch of Italians with really, really good food. I'm not sure if I brought that up on the last podcast, but it was pretty excellent you know, to find actual really good cuisine out here in Arizona because some of the places I've been to have been a little bit subpar. So that was pretty cool. Nice. Italian festival. It sounds pretty good. It gives you a little taste of home. Nothing really to report on mine. And I was looking into the Giants stuff. There's really not much in the Giants. I had a uh, shout out to Jimbo. My, my buddy from uh, Creskill, New Jersey, who fell for a Wes Steinberg tweet recently and texted us like, oh, my God, is this true? The Giants are reportedly smitten and very interested in Malik Willis. No, Jimbo, you got to be careful, buddy. Like I said, show me the source. And the source was Wes Steinberg. If Wes Steinberg is your source, you just got trolled. Um, he's the number one troll count right now, maybe on the Internet, definitely in Giants Twitter. Um, so just be careful. It's draft season. There's going to be a lot of trolling. It's going to be a lot of misreports. But. Other than that, there's really not too much. I mean, we had two cuts since we last recorded, Nick. That was Devontae Booker and uh, Kyle Rudolph. We talked a a little bit on each of our Twitter accounts about it and kind of gave our opinions there. I'll give something quick on that, and you could add to it if there's anything else to add. 
the Rudolph one was exactly as expected. Anyone who watched the film last year saw that Rudolph was just a step slow, a step slower than he's ever been, and a step slow for what any professional NFL football player should be, regardless if you're being paid like the two, the you know, the two plus million or whatever he was going against the cap, two, three plus million. Even if you're just veteran minimum, you, you can't be running routes at that speed and, and be rostered at this point. He'll pick he'll be picked up by some team for sure for, for the veterans minimum. And he could be a better player than what he was for the Giants because you know, as we've seen from studies, and we've talked about this a lot last year, it almost takes a full year to recover from a speed standpoint from the list Frank injury. Just, you know, further evidence as to why Dave Gettleman just absolutely botched that signing completely. But he was cut. That was expected. Some dead cap there, but also some saving. Then Devontae Booker, who not everyone expected, I think. Um, I think ultimately when it comes to Booker, like I said on Twitter, Joe Shane, Brian Dable, they're going forward with the strategy, the premier strategy for building out a running back room, uh, building out your roster in the running back standpoint, at least in my mind and the mind in my, in my opinion, anyone who really understands the, understands the situation, the best way to do it is to recycle rookie contracts on dates, day three specifically, but you know, day two, if you really love someone, if you see a Nick Chubb, you can take a Nick Chubb. I get it. I'm fine with taking a Nick Chubb outside the top 32 you see a dalvin cook okay fine take a dalvin cook you see a jonathan taylor okay fine take it down john taylor but otherwise you find your Ramondre stevensons you find you know the slew of guys the alvin Kamara's. uh the list goes on and on day three or i'm sorry round three round four range even round five to be completely honest you can find some value there too khalil herbert was round five um i think David Montgomery was what round three or four. So there's just plenty of talent to find. You just keep recycling those contracts. Why? Well, then you get them for four years under 1 million against the cap. You don't have to worry about the injuries. You don't have to worry about the long-term longevity issues that come with the running back position. And ultimately you don't have to worry about the fact that there's no shelf life for this position. You look at the average age for running back. It's dropping every single year. And that's, and it's even buoyed up by the fact that Adrian Peterson has been giving it a go for all these years. You take out him and some of the outliers like Frank Gore who aren't playing anymore. And that average age is going to drop even further. So I feel like this is a step in the right direction from that standpoint, Nick, the giants are finally going to be that team that isn't going to invest salary cap space into the running back position. And they're not going to have to worry about giving that second contract out. Hopefully. Now, there's another report that has come out with the New York Giants and that they're going, going to pursue a trade for James Bradbury, but not for Saquon Barkley. And I kind of wanted to get your opinion on that. I wouldn't be too surprised by it, especially because, again, if you're trying to sell like Saquon Barkley right now, you are selling low. Like any, If you guys have done fantasy football at, at any time or if you, you've made trades in any extent in any walk of your life, you know, it's never a great idea to sell low. And you're right now selling Saquon Barkley at his lowest point. So I think the Giants are probably in a position where they're like, I know there are some people out there. Shout out to uh, Will, Will, my, my buddy, Will, who's a giant celebrity on Giants Twitter. He's a very controversial figure. Some people hate him. Some people love him. He's so anti Saquon Barkley. He just feels like get the 7.2 million in cap space. That's enough of an advantage. Who cares what you get? in return compensation-wise for Saquon Barkley. But I'm not so sure the Giants are looking at it the same way, and I can't fully blame them. If his market is only like a four-round picnic, I can understand why you know no one's trying to, or the Giants, I should say, are not trying to pursue a trade with Saquon Barkley. Like Sony Michelle went for what? Like a third-round pick last year or a fourth-round pick last year? That's Sony Michelle, who had similar injury issues and obviously isn't anywhere near the athlete or even running back that Saquon Barkley is. So... I can understand it. And as far as Bradbury goes, yeah, we, we kind of saw that one coming as well. Just doesn't seem to be the system fit for the Giants. I would agree. Ideally, Saquon Barkley being around for the 2022 season, it obviously makes your football team better, but you have to think beyond that. Like a lot of people who are in the contingent to trade Saquon Barkley, we don't hate Saquon Barkley. We don't think Saquon Barkley is a bad player, but we have to look long-term and say, is this guy going to realistically be on the team? Are they going to give him a second contract? Are they going to reset the running back market with a talent like Saquon Barkley? And if the answer is no, which I think you and I are both on the same page, we hope the answer is no in that case, then moving on from him and getting what you can is, I think, a smart move. It's a prudent move. But a fourth-round pick, like it seems like Saquon Barkley would be worth more than that. But as you said just before, dude, it's it sucks because his value is so low. If he had a great season last year, the Giants would be in a really good position right now. Yeah, it would be very different for sure as far as the trade compensation goes. And I think, you know, another aspect of this is just the fact of the matter. What is there really to gain from keeping Saquon Barkley right now? Like you think like, oh, if they, if they keep him for this year and he balls out, 
maybe someone will pay him on the open market. You can get a compensatory draft pick back. I don't know if that's the case because the Giants are going to all more than likely be non-factors in free agency this year based on the disaster they did last year and just kind of just where they're at from a salary cap standpoint. Uh, so, but next year, that's not the case. They're going to clear out a lot of these. They're taking a lot of dead cap hits for this year, and so that's going to clear out a lot of space for next year. And next year, they especially if they let Daniel Jones go this offseason, and if they do let Saquon Barkley at the market, they're going to have some cap space to play around with. And they're going to have they're going to be players in free agency. And once they start becoming players in free agency, you lose that comp story draft pick. The only way they'll get one for Barkley next offseason, and that would anyway be for the 2024 draft talking. You don't get it for that year. You get it for the year after. But even if that's the case, that would have to be non-players in free agency next year. So I don't really see that happening. So, you know, some people say, wait, and try to trade him at the trade deadline. But again, that doesn't feel great either. Like, think about some of the, the we've seen rumors of running backs being traded around the trade deadline. They almost either never get traded or they get traded for nothing. Um, so I don't think that's going to happen either. I believe the Jets tried to trade Le'Veon Bell a couple years ago, right around the trade deadline, and they had to ultimately just cut him. So I don't I don't really know if that's a, a route for the Giants either. So I'm in the same boat as you, Nick. It could be posturing too. It, it realistically could be posturing. Look, we're not going to trade Saquon Barkley. Then you allow the draft to happen. You could draft a running back, say early day three, and then training camp rolls around, preseason rolls around. Big running back ends up getting injured. The Giants are like, yeah, what can you yeah. give us for Barkley? You really need you need a player like this. I I could see it. I still think there are enough teams that straight up do still value the position i guess i would say to the point where that could happen but i think of all the positions it's one of the least likely where that's even going to happen where someone's be like you know what we just lost our running back we need a running back that's the only way we can we can still salvage our season i just don't know how many teams are viewing it like that anymore but we'll see time will tell it is what it is we knew what this was going to be when they drafted him at number two overall we knew the giants were going to be one of the only teams in the nfl that values him like this major asset and it was going to be this and that was going to be the case for trades like moving forward if he was going to be a part of a trade situation at any point in his giants career he we were going to have to accept the fact that he was not valued the same way by almost every other team as he was by the giants and so that's just the fact of the matter that's just life right now it is what it is you can't cry over spilled milk that asset was once the number two overall pick and it immediately wasn't the minute they used it on a running back especially saquon barkley so or not especially any running back saquon barkley included so Anyway, we'll move on from that. One other thing I saw was the Giants are working hard to try and work on a contract restructure for Sterling Shepard to bring Shepard back. Now, old school, I'd be like, well, that's risky. He tore his Achilles. That's going to take minimum of a year. And athletes don't come back from that injury almost ever. But new school is like, damn, what the hell is going on with science? Because recently there's been a lot of athletes coming back from this torn Achilles. Cam Akers just, what was it, six months he comes back from this thing? Insane. Insane. And then I read today, like, as according to, like, you know, the training and the medical and the, and the rehabilitation process and where they're at currently, the expectation is he could be back by, like, late July, Sterling Shepard. So it's not even, like... He won't even be a factor for next season. Obviously, he comes back. He remains a massive injury concern. He's been an injury. The injuries have been an issue for him, and their their toils. They're lo- you know, it's lower body over and over and over again. That's what you don't want to see from an injury standpoint. And that's when you, in my mind, do become injury prone. But look, if he works on a massive, let's say it's a massive contract restructure that takes a huge pay cut, pay cut. What would be your thoughts on bringing back Shepard? Well, it would have to be that. It would have to be a massive. Of restructure, which is what is in talks right now. I would be okay with it. I mean, I'm not a doctor. I don't know how far along he is in his recovery from this, but I think Sterling Shepard, when healthy, and you, I think it's safe to assume that some of his athletic ability would be zapped. But even then, I think he's a very crafty route runner, a great locker room guy, somebody that a lot of the younger players look up to. I wouldn't mind keeping him around if he can compete on the football field. I actually like the fact that they're investigating this. Again, it would have to be at a very low price. We're talking about a huge pay cut, but someone like Sterling Shepard may realistically want to take that. Yeah, no doubt. And guess what? The Giants are not in that good of a position at receiver. Like from a depth standpoint, they have Galladay, they have Tony. And they don't really have too much else. They have Slayton. But, I mean, who knows what we're going to get from Slayton at this point in his career. They need guys. Like, they need bodies there. And they don't want to have to just completely replenish it through the draft. And they don't have any cap space to replenish it through free agency. So, they do need bodies there. You always need talent at wide receiver. You always need depth specifically. Just like corner, it's a very injury-prone type position, skill position. Um, and so, 
So yeah, man, like I I can I can get on board with this as well. And I love Shepard anyway. I know he's been injured a lot in his Giants career, but one of the toughest players I've seen over the last five to ten years on a Giants uniform takes massive hits, comes up with the ball, rarely drops passes, is an incredible good route runner when fully healthy, which I know is rare, um, and can run the vertical stem too. Like I think he has a lot to his game. So I still think he can be a player and still think he can be an asset for the Giants if he somehow, you know, has the Emmanuel Sanders or Cam Akers type recovery from this Achilles injury. So if it's cheap, I'm on board too, Nick. Yeah, let's uh, let's see, man, because that's a low-key position that the Giants kind of need yeah. to look at if Sterling Shepard doesn't come back. You have an often injured Kadarius Tony, Kenny Galladay. What was something that held him back from his early in his early career was injuries. So you're talking about a position that's filled with a bunch of injury-prone players, and even when they're fully healthy, it's it's not necessarily a position that gives you a lot of confidence. So I, I think uh, that's definitely something that the Giants need to look at, and they possibly could spend like a day three pick early day three pick i mean maybe even a late day two pick on the wide receiver position in this draft which is insanely deep at wide receiver could and should because just like last year this is an insanely deep class there's going to be bpa best player available often when the giants are picking in rounds and i don't want to keep missing on the gabriel davises of the world just because we invested in Kadarius tony and we invested those high-end assets in Galladay and tony like you said you need to keep building it out and so the Giants have a lot of picks, and I, even if they keep Shepard, I'm going to be interested in receivers in this class. Receivers and backs for me. I'm, I'm back. I'm, I'm in. I can't wait till we get to those guys for our draft profiles, the backs and receivers, and we'll probably have a heavy focus on those day three and in, in dipping into the day two range, I would say, for those positions. It's probably going to be smart of us not to really hone in on too many of the top-end guys at those positions. I doubt the Giants will go round one receiver again, and I doubt dear god we can only hope they don't go round one or two running back that would just be <laughs> if they run that back after four years later after 2018 i might have a heart attack but you know we'll focus in on those day three guys because that's where the best that's where the value is and i want that like i'm running back this is a year nick where i want the giants to take a day three running back i want one of those day three picks on running back i want and i want an early one like i don't care if it's even round three with one of their two round three guys or if not round three one of those early round four picks. I want running back. I'm back. I want. I want to. I want to find a guy where we can get four years out of him at under one million against the cap, and no, no ifs, ands, or buts. And he's a really good player. You find those all teams find those all the time. It's not hard. Like you could do it all the time. What was Damian Harris? The Patriots have two great backs. They invested a fourth rounder in Ramondre. What was Harris? Was Harris a third or fourth round pick? He was a fourth. Right? It was around there. I'm not honestly not 100 yeah. percent certain. Two great backs in that backfield costing them nothing against the cap literally nothing it's under a million a year and they got him around all they had to do was use a couple of those day three picks so follow that blueprint it's the way to go you might not hit always you sometimes are going to get like a zach moss but who's still capable and a singletary who's not quite as good as like the harris stevenson combo but you could hit too and if you hit boom it's gold and those you know and they still play a huge role so we'll see what happens there a lot of running back talk so far, a lot of receiver talk. Let's get into what we actually came here to do, Nick, which is talk about Charles Cross, the offensive tackle prospect at a Mississippi State. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm going to intro this a little bit. Six foot five, 310 pounds, really does have that ideal length that Dave Gettleman used to prioritize. I don't think it's just Gettleman, though. We talked about this the other day when Joe Shane had his combine interview. Length was the first thing he mentioned when it comes to looking for offense tackles. The second thing he mentioned, Nick, was feet, footwork, quick feet, nimble feet. I think that cross has that. We're going to get into that as well. 
one of the reasons I like him as well. But 6'5", 310, he was a big-time high school recruit. He was the number one overall ranked player in the state of Mississippi. Stayed in his home state, went to Mississippi State. Um, obviously, wasn't. I think he was top 20 in the class. He was behind Neil. Neil was the number one actual tackle in the class. But I do love the. I do love going after top recruits. I mean, you see it a lot. Some NFL teams have really banked big on attacking this aggressively, like going for guys who were either misused at the collegiate level or had something go wrong for them at the collegiate level, but they know they can overcome it at the NFL level. I remember Stefan Diggs is a great example of this. Top high school recruit, didn't have the career he wanted at Maryland, was drafted in the fifth round. Obviously a massive steal there by the Minnesota Vikings. So Cross has the background, has the pedigree, and in my mind, at least just looking at the tape from some of the games I've watched, and looking at the overall numbers from the pressures allowed and the sacks allowed, he took a big jump from the 2020 season to the 2021 season. And obviously everyone knows it was a tough season for these players in 2020 going through the pandemic. They didn't have the same training regimen. They didn't have the same time they could spend. But I like to see that. I'm really big on players taking that big jump and you see the improvement in their game, especially because you're kind of buying them at a different rate because they're they're being evaluated on their whole scale, you know, production there including the 2020 struggles if that may be the case and that those just may not be there anymore i see a player who's really worked to correct a lot of what plagued him in 2020 we'll get to that and more in a bit but give me your overall first thoughts on cross because i will say this nick it surprised me it has surprised me that he's kind of fallen out of the conversation with giants fans at five and seven yeah, it is a little bit surprising. And again, let's preface all this by talking about the system he played in. He played in the air raid system. So this is a big 12 type of system. He played out there in the SEC because Mike Leach went from Washington State to Mississippi State in 2020. So he spent two years in that air raid system. And you're right, he really progressed in that final year last season. He was a different type of player. And I think it all kind of came together for him. But one of the detriments to the air raid is they don't run the football all that much. We'll get into all that. But some of my initial impressions, man, Cross, dude, he is very light on his feet. You're talking about a smooth mover with clean pass sets. I don't love his pre-snap stance, to be honest. I find it to be a little bit narrow, but he still executes plays with excellent balance, all the necessary lateral movement skills, agility, change of direction. He explodes out of his stance. He's very fluid with his hips to flip, hinge, seal. All of those athletic characteristics are great when it comes to Charles Cross. Like I said, man, he can cover a lot of ground with his vertical set. He gets into his 45-degree set pretty quickly. And when he jump sets you, he frames the block well and does a good job absorbing the contact most of the time. Jump set is a little bit more of like a, a run-blocking type of set when you pass it. You just kind of jump at him and try to catch him off guard. So one thing about Charles Cross, and this is a, a nice way to say it, is he's very patient with his hands. Now, that's not always a good thing but it does provide him the ability to quickly react to a defender's pass rushing move. I personally wish he dictated the rep a bit more, but his hand technique, once contact is initiated, is very, very impressive. Cross uses good aiming points when he does punch while square to his target. He hits the outside arm of the bicep, shifts up to the outside shoulder pad, and with his inside hand, he attempts to get underneath the breastplate to the inside armpit. When their center of gravity rises through the rep, he does a good job resyncing his anchor and then refitting his hands underneath the naturally rising pass rusher who is exploding low to high. So you got to imagine pass rusher is exploding low to high. Your arms are going to go up if your arms are on the midline. Of them. So you just take them and kind of wrap them around the defender's arms and get right back underneath, reset on your hips and then anchor. You can do a hop step. You can do whatever you can do. I think Cross does a pretty good job in those situations. He's constantly readjusting his hands when it's warranted, constantly pulling and controlling defenders to limit their ability to get to effective counter moves. And I also think his grip strength is really, really good, especially when it's established right in the midpoint of a defender. And Cross, he's like I said, he's he's patient. So that kind of means he has a propensity to give up initial contact, which is something you don't necessarily love. But once he gets those hands on you, he does a good job kind of limiting your ability to create separation from him. Talked a little bit about his hips, man. Cross his hips, they allow him to quickly recover. Like if an edge rusher is winning up the pass rushing arc with speed because he got a good jump or Cross was a little bit late off the snap, Cross punches the midline of that defender who was attempting to corner and kind of bend through that contact while using his inside arm to control the movement by placing it on the hip or the small of the back. It just kind of rides him effortlessly up the pass rushing arc. He has the feet, foot quickness, all the mirroring skills in those situations as well. So getting beat around the edge isn't something you see all that often from Charles Cross. 
Now, we brought up his anchor a little bit before. I think his anchor is solid. There are times where he gets popped, I think, a little bit by that initial contact because he's a little bit passive with his hands. But I feel like he does a good job, like I said, hop-stepping backwards, just kind of absorbing that contact and mitigating the pass rusher's power as they attempt to kind of roll their hips into the contact. Unlike Evan Neal, Cross rarely overextends himself. He's very, very balanced. He plays with good posture once the snap happens. And I'm not saying I take Cross over Neal, but that is a reality. And I also liked how effortless it was for Cross to recognize stunts. He typically knew what was going to happen when he was aligned against a four technique or a four eye technique. They slanted in size. His eyes would shoot up, see if there was a blitzing linebacker, a possible creeper, or see if there was somebody from like a one technique position who was going to be looping around or even from the backside of the play. I felt like he did a good job kind of picking those up, get him into space too, bro, and just watch him go to town. And whenever Mississippi State ran some of those screens and they kicked Charles Cross into space, he located much smaller defensive backs and just absolutely annihilated them. He had like three or four of them in 2020 and 2021 that I watched, and I was just like, oh my gosh, man. He has great location skills, takes really good angles, and I would not want to be one of those defensive backs on the end of Charles Cross running at me in space. Let's take it there. Let's break it off there. There's like five buckets you kind of touched on that I want to touch on every single one of them. I'm going to forget if we if we go any further. So let's start with the first thing, which is kind of the system he played in. So I think a big part of why his transition was slow, in my mind, to becoming the player he is was this year versus the player he was in 2020. It's because he was recruited originally by Joe Moorhead, friend of the podcast, by the way, follows me on Twitter. We've had some conversations. I'm a big Joe Moorhead fan. I find for him to be the Giants offensive coordinator for like two straight years, and he, he absolutely loves it. But he originally recruited him to play in that system, the Joe Moorhead system, like a triple option style system. Then he makes a transition to the air raid, and it's going to take some time, especially when you're transitioning in a COVID year. Like, it's not easy to do. And so I can fully give him a pass for taking time to become the player he was originally recruited to be and the player that I think he is now. And I still think, like you, like you're going to talk about, Nick, there's still room to grow. Like, the ceiling is still that. I actually think he has a higher floor than some people give him credit for. But I also think the key here is the ceiling is also really high, especially from a pass protection standpoint. Now, you talk about the air raid system. My question for you would be this. I've watched the film. You obviously poured a lot into the film. I, I obviously wanted to see the Bama game first because just to have that kind of game against Bama where you don't give up a pressure against that type of team and that many pass block snaps, and it goes like, what was it? It was like, well, let's see how many. 60 snaps, snaps as a pass blocker against Alabama in 2021. Zero pressures. But... I think there's two factors in here against that Bama game. I want to get your thoughts on this. The first one is Bama specifically, and this is a good sign, but they game plan specific against Cross in this game. They put their best rat pass rusher who usually rushes up against the left tackle on that side. They flipped him to rush against the right tackle so he didn't have to go against Cross all game. So that's one factor. It's a good thing, but it's also like keep that in mind when you're considering how good of a game he had against Bama. Well, he didn't face the best pass rusher. Also, I feel like with regards to the air raid system, and you just mentioned this, Nick, I also see a lot of what you just saw on tape, which is really good mental processing. Like, what did we say about the Giants last year? They have too many players on their roster who can't figure out the stunt, right? Well, Hernandez, he can't figure out how to pick up a stunt. Why? I have no idea. This has been a problem that's been plaguing the Giants offensive line for like a decade straight for no for no explanation how this could continue on so long with the inability to pick up stunt. But it felt like watching Cross, he and his left guard had really good communication. Like they had a great understanding of who to pick up and when. But usually, typically in an air raid system, Nick, I feel like those tackles are more of on an island than you kind of saw with Cross. Is that what you? Is that similar to what you kind of took away? I saw him on an island a decent amount, but anytime someone would try to slant inside, it seemed like the guard a lot of the times when they were passing, which is almost all the time, the guard was looking for work to help him out if he were to be beaten inside. Now, he's not somebody who is like 2020 Andrew Thomas getting beaten inside, but I'll get into it when I talk about some of his weaknesses. He sometimes allows an alley to where he may need the guard to assist him in in, in getting beat inside because you don't want to, to allow anybody to slant towards your inside shoulder and, and kind of win through that. And I don't think it was something that was damning on Cross's tape, but it happened a couple different times. Yeah, okay. That's cool. So now let's get into some of the other things you touched on that I wanted to talk about. The first is like just that jump from 2020. Like there was a rep I saw in 2020 versus 2021 where like Aziz Ojolari just destroys him up the arc. And then you see another example of him just getting pushed back into the quarterback. This is all 2020 stuff. Then you turn on the 2021 and it's just a totally different player. Like you said, he can still sometimes be beat up the arc despite having the kind of athleticism and foot quickness that he has. But as far as like getting pushed back into quarterback, 
you rarely saw that on the 2021 versus the 2020 stuff. I mean, he does a great job in my mind of winning ugly. I think that's what I was trying to talk to you. That's what I told you before the podcast was my kind of takeaway. And I'm curious if you agree from what you said in your first breakdown, Nick, it sounds like you, you do somewhat agree. One, he doesn't look pretty with the hands, like you said, but I do feel like despite not having like that aggressive punch that you see from some of these tackles, he does have timing pretty good with the hands. And, and he does a good job of like, like you said, pulling the hands inside and making these, these plays that you would be like, is that holding? But it doesn't really get called ever. And I don't think it gets called at the collegiate level. I don't think it's going to get called at the NFL level. And it, when he does get kind of like bull rushed or try to like, you know, they try to push him back in the cornerback, he may lose at first, but then he does a really good job of bending his lower base and his ankles and just kind of staying in front of his defender all the time. It feels like when I'm watching him on tape and pass pro, he just doesn't get beat off and it doesn't look great, but he doesn't get beat. And I think he has three things that are so important for an offensive tackle over the years. We've kind of looked at these things like Eric flowers came in and he didn't have this. It's one, the, the nimble and quick feet, which is huge to the length, but then three, also that ankle flexion and that ability to bend his ankles and the lower body base, like the, the lower half body bend and flexibility. I think he has all of those things which help him so much when he's when people are trying to bull rush him or trying to, you know, they might beat him at first, but he re-anchors, he resets, and he just stays in front of his defender. I disagree with the, the wind's ugly in terms of his hand technique. I think he's passive with his hands, which we'll get into with the, with the weakness and, and all of that. But I think his hand technique, once contact is initiated, is, is pretty good. I don't think he wins ugly in that way. I think he may win on, in an unorthodox manner at times. That's a better way a, to say it. Not ugly, unorthodox. As a run blocker, but as a pass protector, I, I don't like how passive he, he can be with his punch or the lack thereof punch, You know, allowing defenders into your chest, giving up initial contact. There are pros and cons to both of that, which I'll get into in a little bit. But I don't think that has anything necessary. Like, I, obviously, it is technical, but it's not necessarily his hand technique per se once he decides to strike. Because there were times on tape where he was going up against like Josh Pascal of Kentucky or the Alabama game where he allowed the defender to to make the first move. But then once that if that move wasn't successful, he made them pay by getting his hands inside there. If you, if anybody wants to go to the big blue view YouTube page, it's a 52 minute breakdown on this. And I understand people probably don't want to spend 52 minutes watching an in-depth breakdown of Charles cross. But in the beginning portions of that, I go through a lot of the hand technique and a lot of the plays specific plays that I felt like he had success in that area, but you'll see all the weaknesses that I'm about to talk about. You'll see how some of those can, they have to be addressed. They have to be brought up. It doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be a bad prospect by any means, but the entire evaluation has to to be comprehensive, and I feel like we try to do the, our best job here on this podcast, providing that to to the listeners. And let's talk about another thing you mentioned on the first breakdown, and that's something that I've seen come up a lot. And anyone who watches the film, like it doesn't matter what where you're at as far as like evaluating offensive linemen, no matter where you're at, you'll see this immediately. He does have a weird, interesting stance, like in his pass protection. It's his feet are really close together. It's super tight. And I'm sure that's a, not what any offensive line could, someone obviously taught him this, but anyone he gets to at the NFL level is probably going to either not like this or try to change this. And I'm not so sure, like he gets away with it. And I think he can honestly get away with it. Um, at the NFL level too. I just don't think it's that big of a, like, I know it's not ideal, but it, I don't know if it's a barrier to success that time will tell, or you may have a different opinion on that, Nick, but I do, I am curious. Obviously you mentioned that he has this too. It's pretty obvious. Do you think this is something that could kind of stymie his transition to the NFL in the sense that he'll get there, a coach will look at him and he'll try to change him. He'll try to change with the coach. He'll listen to his coaching. He's you know, he's obviously been billed as a really quiet guy, but also a hard worker and somebody who's not going to be a problem from any standpoint, you know, from that standpoint at all. But in trying to change, he'll struggle because he's learning something new and he's not used to something new and he's going to make mistakes doing that. Or do you think that, I guess there's, he can either change that really quickly and it's a quick transition or he'll kind of be in a better case if he just moves forward doing the same thing he's been doing. Any kind of change to any technique it's plausible that the player could struggle now against Mrs. or against Ole Miss. I should say, I felt like his base widened as the game went on because he was going up against Sam Williams, who is an old Miss, 
edge rusher, probably going to be a day two pick. And I felt like Sam Williams was getting the best of him. So he, it seemed like his his base was widened a little bit from there because he was struggling. I don't know necessarily why his base was narrow in, in a lot of his film. I don't think it's a damning thing. But again, it just kind of gets grouped into the evaluation. In terms of Charles Cross, if the offensive line coach of the team that selects him wants him to widen his base, I'm sure that he can adapt to that. Like I said, it wasn't consistent on every one of his plays. I felt like he adapted when he was kind of struggling with Sam Williams, made his base a little bit wider. I don't know if that was a conscious thing he did or not, but I'm not overly worried about that. It's just something that I felt like was a little odd to see pre-snap one of the top tackle prospects have just a little bit more of a narrow base than you're used to seeing. You know, Typically, you want your feet shoulder width apart. And like I said, there are plays where he has his feet shoulder width apart, but then there are plays where he doesn't. And it's just like, why exactly is that happening? Well, that's good to hear because I know from just experience being a Giants fan and Giants analyst, we saw some struggles from Andrew Thomas when he was asked to change some things his rookie year and then kind of went back to what worked for him. And he's found he's obviously found a really nice base and really nice area. You know, now he can find success in doing what he does. So that's just something good to hear. Another thing you mentioned that I thought was worth touching on. A lot of people talk about, you know, what is he as a run blocker? And you're going to get to that. But not enough, I don't think, is made of how his athlete, how much upside his athleticism and by his athleticism, I mean, not just his length. That's one part of it, his quick feet and his nimble feet, but also his speed. I mean, he just ran a sub five 40 yard dash, which is super fast for a guy of his of his, you know, six, five, three, ten. But he also you can see it. It's quickness. You mention it on some of those quick hitting screens and bubbles and stuff to the outside. He gets to that second level fast and he could plaster defenders. There was one clip you put up in your film breakdown. I think it was like 33 minutes in if somebody wants to take a look i think it was 33 but i might be wrong in that range where he just gets to the second level and just it's a small defender obviously like this guy's probably he's probably got like 100 pounds on him so keep that in mind but he just puts him right to the ground and he's quick in getting there so i think that's something you mentioned and i think that can be an asset in a system like the one brian dable is going to bring to the giants yeah, getting linemen into space on quick hitters, bubble screens. I think Charles Cross would thrive in that area. And before we even get into the weaknesses, one big question mark around Charles Cross and his ability to mesh with the New York Giants is the fact that he played left tackle yeah. at Mississippi State. So can he make that transition to the right side? That is a fair critique right there because it's like writing with your right hand and writing with your left hand. You know, Some people might be able to do it or even throwing. Some people might be able to do it but others may not be. And I, I think that has to be something that's sussed out in private workouts, you know, and all the things that we're probably not going to see, to be honest. So that's, that's a realistic, I would say detriment to him possibly being a New York Giants. I don't think the New York Giants would think about switching Andrew Thomas to the right side, even though he had success at right tackle while he was a freshman at Georgia. I think he's going to be the left tackle. So can Charles Cross play right tackle? That's the question. And I don't necessarily have an answer for it. I just know we don't have a lot of film of him doing it. Yeah, it's a really interesting question too. We can touch on this a little bit because I think it just brings up a nice fun, um, you know, 30,000 foot football discussion that's worth discussing. The first would be like, do you take the best player? And then worry about, you know, that type of thing later. Like, ah, well, you know what? Because I agree with you. Like, this would be a draft where it'd be, at least from Charles Cross standpoint, and I feel like for for most of these that I've studied so far, it would be better if the Giants needed a left tackle, not a right tackle. Like, Charles Cross, to me, projects much better as a left tackle, and he's played it. He's played it his whole career. Like, this is, like you said, it's not like Andrew Thomas, who came in with the experience at right tackle at Georgia and the experience at left tackle. This is a totally different situation. You're just projecting at this point if he can play right tackle. But the question is, like, I agree with you. At this point, it seems like the Giants are probably going to say, and, and I get why, let's leave Andrew Thomas at left tackle. He's proven he can do it. Let's not make him have to change this whole, you know, his whole, uh, you know, preparation mindset, everything again, and move to the right side. But is it more valuable to have that mindset or to have the mindset of let's get the best players in here? It's hard enough to find good offensive linemen, and then let's worry later about where they're going to play. That's an interesting question that I'm curious to get your thoughts on. Yeah, honestly, I think it would all depend on the situation. If you're in a draft room and Charles Cross is available, say the Giants trade back or they might have him valued really high at, say, seven or something like that. And there are other players that are valued in a comparable manner in terms of your draft grade of them. And they are also positions of need. Maybe you want to avoid the headache of trying to worry about the transition. You go with a player that you have a similar grade on that you know is going to fit effortlessly into 
the defense or the offense, whatever position that player happens to be in. I think that's how you look at it. But if you're sitting there on the board, Dan, and Charles Cross is by far and away the highest graded player on your board, I think you have to go with him there. And then you worry about it. I mean, it's I, I can see why people would have reservations with that decision. And that's why I think this is a fun thought exercise. But I'm not going to pass up incredible value, especially if I work this kid out and I had a realistic thought that he could make the transition. Now, it's a prognostication. It's not something that you have seen on film. But if you worked him out and you feel comfortable enough in your evaluation of this player, then I think you can do that and then worry about it later. But it's all contextual and it all depends on what's happening currently on the draft board. And the context is important. What I'm about to say is not needs to be taken into context because I'm not referring to who did the best in the combine when you have shorts and you know shorts and shells on and you know it, it to me it means almost nothing. But as far as projection goes, taking a outside like taking away the dumb stuff like the 40 yard dash used as projection, every other way used to make projections in my mind those are what the best teams are doing. The best teams are projecting moving forward, and the best teams are taking the best players available. And so I would actually lean in the boat of if you have a really high grade on someone, but he may not, at least not by projection, but at least as of now on paper, fit what you want out of him or the position you wanted of him, you should prioritize getting that player and worrying about the rest later because it's hard to find these guys. Like it, there might be a drop off after Charles Cross and whoever is next on your board at tackle, assuming you know they have similar grades on Cross and the and the other two that are high up there, Neil and Icky. So we'll see what happens there. But I would lean toward, you know, you get the best player, you worry about it later. But we'll, we'll see what, and we're, we're going to find out more about this as we move on. Um, and I'm going to get your take on where you view him as a prospect, by the way, because we're obviously going to do that at the end and talk about one, would he fit the Giants? And two, would he be in the range of the Giants' current picks? Where you Would you use one of the current picks on him? But we'll get to that in a little bit. Instead, let's talk about another thing that's been, you know, at least described right now as a possible con for Charles Cross. And he was asked about it at the combine, Nick. And he said, just watch the film, which I love, by the way, <laughs> because you know what? He's hearing these questions from like reporters, which I'm sure in his mind, he's like, everyone who asked me these questions has, if anything, watched a highlight video of me, if anything, like not everyone, but I think the vast majority, probably 95% of the people asking him questions, at the combine have not watched film. They haven't even watched like your 52 minute film breakdown, which is like kind of the best hits. They don't even, they haven't even gotten that far. So he's like, watch the film. Then you come back to me and talk about my run blocking, but you have watched the film, Nick. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on what's kind of been described by some people as a negative for Charles Cross. And that's his run blocking. Yeah, so the issues with his run blocking, again, he only performed this task, what, 200 times in 2021, playing in the unconventional air raid system. And there's going to be inexperience with that in terms of his transition to being a pro-style run blocker. A lot of teams may view that in a, in a, in a way where they're not going to want to take the risk in the top 10. But he has the frame. He has the length to succeed as a run blocker. I'm not going to sit here and say that it's overly polished because I don't really necessarily see the generation of power through the ground, his legs and his hips at the point of attack that is necessary to consistently move bodies off the line of scrimmage. I don't feel like he does a great job sustaining himself on blocks. Now, there wasn't a lot of opportunity for him to run block, like I said before, and that's an issue. But I think this could also be looked at as an advantage, right? Like with more reps will come better proficiency. Now, one thing that I'm that I'm curious about, and I want to get your take on this. We, we talked about how he was, you know, a bit passive and patient in his nature in pass protection and how that could possibly hinder his ability to effectively run block, or at least at college it did, because run blocking is a much more about, you know, pouncing on the opponent and forcing one's will onto an opposing player. Cross didn't necessarily do that too often as a pass protector. Who's Like I said, he's a little bit more of a catcher than someone who's going yeah. to dictate the rep. So do you think there's something there in maybe why he's not absolutely dominating people at the point of attack as a run blocker in the limited times he was asked to do so? It's definitely worth pondering, Nick, because obviously, as we've learned as Giants fans, mentality is a big part of being an offensive lineman, that dog in you. It's something that's plagued one of their top asset picks, Matt Parrott, who they had high expectations for and just kind of never. I know he got injured at the end, but he never kind of came to fruition, at least in the short period of time. There's still development that could happen with Parrot. I'm not giving up on Parrot, but 
not yet at least. I mean, dear God, I got to hope I can't give up on him yet. They don't have many prospects to, to really have hope for on this roster. So he's got to be one of them. But the point is, that's part of what plagued him. And that's part of what made some of these guys so good. Like the Richie Soyberts of the world, right? And the Sean O'Hara's. These guys are like former undrafted free agents, late round picks, undersized, don't have crazy length, don't have crazy athleticism. But they had dog in them. And they were really good in the run game because of it. And obviously they had the they had the mental capacity and the processing to be good in the pass game as well as all the, you know, that Giants offensive line of the yesteryear was. But it's definitely something to consider. I think in Cross's case, part like like you said, there's two sides to it. There's that side to it, but there's also the upside to it that he doesn't have a lot of experience doing it. And there's not a lot of bad film because there's not a lot of film at all. Like you mentioned the few the, how few run block, how, how many few snaps he did as had as a run blocker which is crazy to begin with. Like if you just think of the scope of it, considering he's had seven, they had to hit 719 snaps as a pass blocker in 2021. And you just gave the number he had as a run blocker. <laughs> Where do you see that? Like this is the air raid system. I mean, this is Mike Leach. He just doesn't give an F. He's like, I'm not running the ball. I don't, I don't think running the ball works for, for my offense. So I'm passing the ball, but it is wild to think about that lack of experience. And the other thing that I wanted to bring up, Nick, and this kind of touches on your question and I'll throw it back to you. He doesn't really have much experience in anything but this zone blocking scheme. Like as far as run blocking goes, it's that zone scheme that he, there's few, you know, few examples of him in a, you know, running power in a power gap type play. And so if any, I didn't really see many when I watch, I'm sure I'm, I'm not certain if you picked up. So it's not only a lack of experience overall as a run blocker, Nick, that I'm concerned with. It's also just like, does he have, is he going to be able to transition quickly to a different run blocking scheme that, than that zone scheme? Yeah, I think that's a fair concern to, to have in terms of cross. And again, I'm not, we're not questioning, or I'm not at least questioning, I don't think you are either, his competitive toughness when we no. say the dog in the fight. Like Matt Parrott has some questions about his competitive toughness. I think cross is, is a tough dude competitively because when you see him out in space and he has the ability to absolutely just kill a defender, he does so. <laughs> he, he takes advantage of that. But there is something too. Look, I'm not somebody who's going to strike a lot when I am pass setting. So when I'm asked to strike as a run blocker in a very limited amount of snaps that I was asked to do so, I'm not as proficient at it now. With more experience, he can gain more proficiency. And so that's the difference between a lack of competitive toughness and, and what we're discussing right here. So I want to make, make that clear. But in terms of what you said, I saw a couple... I guess you can call them power gap type plays where he blocked down on a four technique or a four eye technique. And then the play side guard kicked out into space. Saw that maybe like three or four times mm. on film. And as a down blocker in that situation, as a tackle, you're, you're going to do a pretty good job. Like if you have, if you're going up against a four eye or a three technique, you have the angle right there. Yeah. So all you got to do is position your gigantic frame and just not get bullied over. And Charles Cross did that well. And I think he could be a puller if you ever want to run any kind of, uh, you know, pin pull concept or just pull him from the backside. I think he's more than athletic and he has the location skills and the body control while moving to do all of those things. But he just wasn't asked to do it all that often while in college. And when you talk about the, the zone blocking, look, man, he did well on, on the backside of zone runs, you know, those scoop blocks. I felt like it was a little unconventional sometimes to where he was boxing the, the defender out. Cause like what you want to do in those situations is you want to get your your hip across their hips. Like a lot of people say, get your hat across their hat. It's, it's more about getting your hips. Your your hips dictate everything. Like, like Chubb said, man, it's all in the hips, dude. You got to get your <laughs> hips across your assignments, hips. And I felt like he did that. And then once he did that, he basically turned into a basketball player trying to box somebody out around the rim. A little bit unconventional, but it was effective. Yeah. And then, you know, on the play side, on his reach blocks, sometimes he didn't sustain the block as well, but athletically he was more than capable of doing it. I don't feel like, he is the most powerful tackle in the class. That's not what we believe him to be, but I don't, and I, and I have some concerns about his power, but I don't look at his tape and say, man, this guy has absolutely no power. He's just going to get bullied around the NFL. So it, it's a little bit of a concern to me, but it, it's not a, a damning thing to where I'm going to take him out of the first round. Yeah. For me, it's, it's, I'm with you. I, again, I'm big on projection when it comes to these guys, especially as we've seen with some of these tackles and how they've transitioned to the NFL. Tristan Wirfs is a great example, but I see the I see the ceiling for a player like Cross. I really do because you can see like you talked a lot about it. Like his natural athleticism, it's not just the nimble feet and the footwork, which I think is the most important thing for an offensive lineman. Your feet, but it's also what you just mentioned while breaking down his run blocking. And I see it more, and I see it not more, but also as a pass blocker, which is really enthusiastic, which I'm really enthusiastic about. And you know, it's a really 
good thing for me to see. It's that ability to flip his hips like a 220-pound human being, but he's not. He's 310, and he came in. He's put on a lot of weight. I still think there's more weight to go, and he could, as you said, become a stronger player if he puts on a different uh, you know, type of girth to his frame. But his ability to flip his hips even in pass protection, you'll see him get beat, and the only way to kind of get back in front of his defender who has him beat early is by flipping his hips and, and, and moving his feet quickly and chopping his feet to get back in front of him, and he does. And he gets back in front of him by flipping his hips, and I think that's where – the issues, you know, some people have talked about, oh, is he strong enough? Is he strong? I, I don't know. In the run game. I think when you watch him as a pass protector, Nick, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. That's where kind of all my concerns about his core strength are just taken off the board for me, because I think his core strength shows up most as a pass protector. You're not way off with that. Like I said, he gives up some pop sometimes, but he was able to resync his anchor, like you said, with the lower body flexion that he possesses. Again, when it comes to the run game, dude, like technique is married to your ability to engage with your strength or to optimize your strength, if you will. And when your technique isn't there, it, it's it's going to make you look less strong. And I feel like that's something that hurts Charles Cross. Like we said, with the punching, look, he has good solid aiming points and pass protection, but he's not that great with his hands when he's asked to run block because of all the things that we've listed through this podcast. So he's given up his chest and right when a defender strikes your chest and they read his run and they're able to lock you out, get your eyes on the ball carrier. What's the first thing they're going to do? They're going to toss you to the side. So you have to gain some sort of inside hand placement doesn't have to be right on the breastplate it can be the bicep you know you have to have some sort of hand posture on the individual's chest and cross doesn't always win the leverage battle so there are times where you know he he comes wide with his hands when he's asked to run block and he just gives up his chest which is something that he does in pass protection only his anchor allows him to kind of get away with that so i i think it's technical with the with the hands that make his lack of strength seem like it is more of a hindrance towards his upside as a prospect. I think that's totally fair. And I also think that gives me again, more hope and more, more enthusiasm because that to me can be fixed at the next level versus some of these other things you see with some of these prospects that I don't think can be fixed. So before we, uh, you know, is there anything else you want to touch on his profile before we kind of give our overall thoughts on him as a player? And then we start to touch on things like one where, where he might get drafted. And if we're interested in the giants drafting him there. Yeah, I want to touch on some weaknesses in pass protection, which okay. we haven't uh, really gone over. And I also want to say, in terms of him run blocking, there are times where he false steps. This isn't something that he does all that often. Like run blocking is what I mean. And there are times where instead of driving off of his outside foot and, and getting his hips oriented right away on his target, he would lift that outside foot up, reposition it down, and then explode off. And it, it wasn't like it was a bucket step or, or a way to, to really – you know, put yourself in an optimal position. It was just a false step. So I think that's something else that can be corrected. So it, technically as a run blocker, there's a lot of room to, to correct the things that he's doing wrong. And that goes to what you're saying. There's a lot of upside here. And I think offensive line coaches are going to look at that and say, damn, they are, there's a decent amount of upside here. As we kind of mentioned before, Van Cross, he has that narrow stance pre-snap, you know, didn't get him in trouble all that often, but there were times when he took a big first step kind of expecting speed up the pass rushing arc. And then he left that open alley that we were referencing before to the inside. And you know what, man, he's good at redistributing his weight off of his outside foot and redirecting those hips back inside to crash those inside slanting defenders into the guard. But that could be an issue in the NFL, something to just kind of take note of. And that, Patience, we talked about, man. Patience for Cross, it can be a virtue, but it can also be a huge detriment. Both of these statements, they can be true. Cross rarely established the initial contact as a pass protector, as we've brought up several times. He was much more of a catcher than a player who dictates the terms of the rep. To his credit, he was very good doing that, you know, catching, absorbing the contact, sitting back on his anchor and base, and then not allowing defenders to separate once he gets those mitts inside. But there are times, man, when I'd rather just see him punch than catch. I also felt like he could use his length a bit more effectively in pass protection. I think that's a byproduct of not being all that aggressive with your striking. You know, you look at Evan Neal's tape, he strikes and will just end Ed Rusher's dreams right in their tracks. It's commanding, it's varied, it's unpredictable, and it, is, it establishes the sense of authority. However, Neil also, he has an issue with leaning into contact and bending at the waist. That's something that Cross doesn't struggle with, and those are not coincidences whatsoever. It's kind of like the duality of striking technique between two future first round picks, you know, you just contrasted next to each other. And when Cross with his outside punch, so his outside arm, when he's moving up the pass rushing arc, 
when that doesn't land on the bicep, he tends to kind of go right after that outside shoulder and he doesn't get it inside a lot of the times, some of the times I should say. And he kind of pulls like he took nine penalties in 2021. That's something that has to kind of be brought up as well. So I think his aiming points generally in pass protection, although passive when he does punch, it's solid aiming points. But if he doesn't land and he gets to that outside shoulder, tends to kind of grab and pull a little bit. And it's very evident on film that he's holding and that's going to cause, you know, yellow laundry to fly out of the ref's pocket over the whatever, wherever the hell the ref kind of keeps it. So those are little things that I think are, uh, that have to be kind of brought up what you got on that. Yeah, I think you're right. My question for you with that is because obviously I see it too. And I almost feel like it's part of his game in, in a sense, like part of his game and how he operates as a protector. But my question for you would be this. Is that something that are the style that you're talking about? Is that something that you do often see get called at the NFL level? I don't have as good expertise on this. Um, I was just thinking about when you're talking about this and I was thinking about this before the podcast, because it's obvious you kind of see it on the film when you watch him. Is that either one, something that you think just doesn't get called to the collegiate level, but will get called the NFL level or two, he kind of does it in a way that you can get away with it. I think if it's on the inside, you can get away with it. There's holding on every single Mm -hmm. NFL play. I don't care what anybody says. There's always holding. But if it's outside of the framework of the chest and it's on the shoulder pad or it's on the upper back, it's going to get called. Once you see a pull of the jersey and the jersey is separating from the pad, that's more than likely going to get flat. So you keep your elbows tight, you strike with precision, and you you get on the inside of the breastplate, kind of underneath that armpit, you can hold all day, man. You can hold grip strength, pull close. It's something that I felt like Charles Cross did a good job of once he landed his hands in an accurate position. He would pull them close to his face mask and then just kind of sit back and not allow them to separate. Excellent grip strength, like we said. But once that outside arm is on the outside portion of the edge rusher who's trying to turn yeah. a tight corner on you and you see that jersey go up, that's gonna it's gonna get flat. Yep, good point. And so that's something obviously he'll have to work on. He's not a perfect product. None of these guys are. I think that goes to something you said before the podcast, which is interesting. Like if we were doing this, if we had the 2020 class, obviously a very famous class now, Andrew Thomas, Tristan Wirfs, the guy Beckton who's had too many injuries and hasn't been able to kind of come to fruition. And then um, Jedrick Wills who has been good, but was much better actually in 2020, it seems like, than 2021. But he also has dealt with injuries. I think we both so far, at least from what I've seen at a cross, would probably rank cross fifth uh, amongst those five. Would you agree with that? Yes, yes. Yeah. And I and we'll go over the other prospects. I haven't watched Dickie Aquano yet. I'm very interested to see Aquano, yeah. and I'm going to get that done hopefully this week. So, And I've already finished my Evan Neal evaluation, and we'll we'll have a podcast on that soon. Yeah, we'll have a podcast on Neil, um, but I still think even Neil, we'll talk about that too. But uh, again, that was a really great class. But th- and this one, that doesn't mean these guys aren't good. It just it's a different level of prospect, I think. But well, time will tell with that. So what else do you have on uh, before we get to? I kind of want to do an overall review of our thoughts on this player, and then kind of get to if we have interest in the Giants taking them. But before I do that, I don't want to cut you off. Do you have anything else from the film that you wanted to touch on when it comes to Charles Cross? No, I think that's about everything. With, with Charles Cross, I'm I'm curious to see where he's going to go because he could realistically go in the top ten, and we're going to get into all that right now. But I do see a a high ceiling with a player like Charles Cross, for sure. So I'll get into this first, and then we'll see where your thoughts are. But I think not only can he go in the top ten, he will go in the top ten, and he should go in the top ten. He's on my very short list of players I'm interested for the Giants at five and seven so far. Time will tell. It's going to be an expanded list, obviously, as I get to see more of these prospects. I still haven't seen too many. But what I have seen from Cross, I really like. And the reason I like Cross, there's a bunch of reasons. I'll get to them to start here. One, it's the jump he's made from 2020 to 2021 as a player. He had the pedigree always, but he made that jump. And he's actually put together a really good film, too. It's just simply the the amount of repetition he has as a pass blocker. Like You go in with such a better knowledge of a player and a prospect and what he can do when you increase that sample size. And within that system that he played in, it's an insane sample size. I talked about it earlier. 719 snaps as a pass protector in 2021. It's just a wild number. And in and as far as pro football focuses charting goes, which is all we have to go by as far as charting goes, he only allowed two sacks, 14 quarterback hurries, and zero quarterback hits on 719 snaps in 10 of his 12 games. Again, according to PFF, he had 50 or more snaps as a pass blocker. That's crazy. Like repetition, repetition, large sample size there. So I really like that. 
But for me, what I see when I watch Cross, and I'm curious to get your take on this, on how off this take would, might be, and it's fine if it is. I don't care. I kind of see a higher upside version of Isaiah Wynn, who was a prospect who came into the draft a couple of years ago. The Patriots selected him in round one. Everyone said he had to move to guard. He played left tackle at, at, at Georgia, and then he's played, played some left tackle for the Patriots. I know he's had some injuries as well. But I see like a higher upside version of Isaiah Wynn, a, a lengthier version of him, a way more athletic version of him, better, uh, similar feet, but, but just as good feet. And that same ability to just keep his defender in front of him. For me, Cross has the floor because he does a good job of keeping his, his defender in front of him, even if it doesn't always look pretty. And I does, he does get beat up the arc still a little bit, but he's improved there as well, especially from what, some of what you saw in 2020. And that, that just, he has the things I look for in a tackle that quick feet, super nimble on his feet. And that athleticism and length and ability to get to that, to climb to that second level on kind of those, you know, screen plays, like you said, and stuff that's thrown to the perimeter. I think there are some definite concerns with him. Obviously, he's not a finished product and he doesn't have much experience at all as a run blocker, which is a problem for sure. And like you said, who knows if he can play right tackle. And right now, it seems like the Giants are just dead set on having Thomas at left tackle for, for you know, for reasons we discussed and whoever they draft as their right tackle, at least especially for year one. But for all the traits he has, what he's already proven he can do, and the upside, for me, he is worth a top 10 pick. An investment, it's a projection. Obviously, all these picks are projections. So is Mahomes. So is you know some of the best players in the NFL right now. But Nick, for me, I'm okay. I, he's on my short list right now for five and seven. For five and seven, I don't know if Charles Cross would be up there for me. Uh, I haven't watched some of the cornerbacks that I'm really, really interested in quite yet. I'm getting through a lot of the players that are going to be selected in the top 10. I wouldn't necessarily be pissed if Charles Cross is the pick. I don't think it would be a dumb pick, but I think players like Evan Neal have a much higher floor. And I think you have to judge this through ceiling floor type of argument with Charles Cross. If, you know, like I said, if the, if the giants interview him and he, you know, proves that he can play on the right side, if, if they, you know, test out his power and all that stuff, then you could do that in certain ways, just kind of see how, how strong they are. I don't really have that many concerns when it, when it comes to how functionally strong he is. I do believe a lot of his issues are technical in terms of his run blocking. At the same time, what is his ceiling as a run blocker? I think that is something that, or just how good can he be as a run blocker? Just because we haven't seen it coming from the air raid. I think that's a something that has to be considered in the evaluation. Whereas someone like Evan Neal, who will go over here in like a week or so, is... I feel like a much higher floor type of player. I'm not necessarily going to be mad if the Giants, like I said, select him there, but I don't know if I would say he's going to be at the top of that list. In terms of your Isaiah Wynn comparison, I don't really, I don't really see Isaiah Wynn, to be honest. Now, I don't, I didn't study Wynn intently that draft. I think that was before I was really, really diving in to the NFL draft and studying prospects. I think at that year I was working for or with, I should say, inside the pylon. And we put together a draft guide and I was solely studying edge and defensive linemen in 2018. I watched like almost a hundred of them that year. Guys from like Slippery Rock University and dudes who barely got a sniff at the practice squad because we did our draft guide, but that's neither here nor there. But I feel like Wynn was better at the point of attack. I mean, he played at Georgia, you know, like they had, they had a much more pro style type of running. So the, I don't I didn't necessarily see that. I can get why people say Andre Dillard, but people look at Andre Dillard like, oh, bust. I'm like, oh, Andre Dillard tore his Achilles. Andre Dillard's been been injured. And there were questions about Andre Dillard's desire for football. I don't get that sense with Charles Cross. And that says a lot about his coachability and all the things that he's going to have to prove once he gets to the NFL level. So the big question in terms of meshing with the Giants is can he play on the right side? And that has to be something that is asked and investigated. I yeah. think if you're staying at five and seven, because there are a lot of other prospects who I will probably grade in a similar light to Charles Cross, that I would rather have if there is no clarity on that answer. That's fair. I think uh, we'll see as we go through the actual, you know, other tackle prospects, if we have anyone in that range. But I think just for me, from what I've seen, I do like the upside there a lot from, and I think Dillard's probably a fair comparison. I mean, there are guys like that have come out that remind me of him. I just think in his ability to stay in front of his defender is very underrated. I actually feel like I know you, you've said the floor, the floor ceiling thing when it comes to like Neil and cross, I feel like I haven't studied, I haven't dove, dove that far yet into Neil, but from some of the things I've seen just from breakdowns from other people who have done extensive film study, 
I almost feel like he has more examples, and that's Neil, of just being caught off balance and, and losing from that standpoint. That's much more. When I factor that in, it almost makes me feel like Cross has a higher floor. I don't know. You can tell me if this doesn't make any sense. but No, it, it, no, it makes sense, dude. I mean, like, again, these like evaluations are comprehensive, man. There's a ton of stuff that you have to kind of take into account here, especially when you're juxtaposing two players next to each other. I think what you're saying is definitely a, a, a key ingredient towards this equation. I don't think you're off by saying this. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks. Because my, my thought here is that like, despite the fact that he's this long cross, he does do a really good job of staying balanced, especially in his pass protection. He's bending in at his lower body and bending at his ankles. And that keeps him balanced and it keeps him from being off balance. And that, that to me is represents a high floor because if you have a player who looks like he's going to get beat initially, it's again, it's not like these, these unbelievable looking passets where you just, arms a guy to the ground or anything like that but he stays in front of the defender often and so it does feel like that represents a higher floor i'm not sure well time will tell but like you said the key here is can he play right tackle? because it does feel at least as of now and we haven't read anything else we don't know any inside sources but that the giants are looking for a right tackle not an offensive tackle yeah and that's like we said has to be sussed out but at the end of the day man like if you're looking for somebody with smooth pass protection skills somebody who can be a starting left tackle in the league who has some questions about his run blocking but like this entire podcast have to take everything into account as to why there are questions from a technical standpoint, from a lack of experience standpoint. Do you think your coaches can teach this guy? And I think that he can be taught. I don't think that there are competitive issues with someone like Charles Cross. So if you want someone with quick feet who's going to protect your quarterback, Charles Cross is your guy. And if he yeah. falls out of the top 10 in this draft class that doesn't have like huge top end talent, you might get you might get a steal there. Yep, I can see it too. You might get a high upside steal there. We'll see what happens in relation to how he fits with the Giants. All right, that's all we have for today on Charles Cross. It's the first of what we hope and plan to be many NFL draft profiles. We're going to hit guys that fit the Giants. We're going to do a lot of positions this year because the Giants have a lot of positions they're going to be interested in. Obviously, tackle. Guard is going to obviously be a position they're interested in. Center is going to be a position they're interested in. Wide receiver, we talked about the top of this podcast. Position they're interested in. Running back, tight end. Literally everything on the offense, even quarterback. The Giants have said they're going to consider every quarterback in this class. They've already met with some. So me and Nick are going to do something we haven't done since we started this podcast, and that's do a couple of these profiles at least on a quarterback because I'm excited to do it anyway. I love to watch the quarterbacks, but it's also something that might appeal to the Giants. You don't know. We don't know. None of us know. The Giants could surprise everyone and take a quarterback at five or seven. I don't think that's going to happen, and I don't think Nick thinks that either, but we just don't know. It's it's definitely in the realm of possibility if they fall in love with the prospect when they evaluate him. And then on the other side of the ball, defense, with the exception of maybe, I guess, interior defensive line and safety, the Giants could be taking any position, I feel like, on the defense side of the ball as well. I think Kyle Hamilton's in consideration so i would even keep safety in the sure. conversation so because he's best could be the best player they see on the board there by far like you said earlier yeah dude, and, I, and i think you're on to something with the quarterback thing too and i don't think it's because malik willis looked good throwing in his underwear like what did you expect of course he's going to look good throwing the football he could throw the football but you know it's all about at the combine and at the senior bowl when they had all those meetings that we're not going to be privy to how well did they retain knowledge how well did they mesh with the coaching staff it, it's not a foregone conclusion that the Giants are not going to select a quarterback. So we have to do our work with some of these quarterbacks, bro. Without a doubt. All right, everyone. Thank you to, to tuning in. More draft profiles on the way. We're also going to do what we did last year, which is get on a lot of these draft experts for interviews. I think those are always received well. And I've been building out the base there. We've been building out our base of contacts there. And I'm going to have some new people on as well that I've been kind of chirping at and trying to, you know, spark the flame and get that going. We'll see if we can get some of those people, but definitely some big names coming on as well. So keep it locked and loaded on the Big Blue Banter podcast. As always, if you want to help us, there's only one thing I'll ever ask. If you haven't done it already, please, please, please head over to iTunes. Leave us a five-star rating, write in a review. If you write in a question, we'll answer it. Sometimes the uh, iTunes takes a while to like update these. So the last one we have is from uh, February. So if you did ask a question and it's just not showing up yet, just be patient. When we do get those questions in, I will go ahead and read them on their podcast and answer them. We're probably going to do a mailbag at some point too, because we've been hinting at that, but please do us a favor, head over to iTunes, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, you download, you rate and review. And if you do your podcast on uh, Spotify, just make sure you at least hit the follow button. That also helps us kind of within the algorithm. So thank you so much. Have a great rest of your weekend and we'll talk to you soon.